And this morning we're going to hit uh, a really pertinent topic, a topic I think we'll find really relevant either to an experience that you're having right now or to an experience that you have had. Uh, certainly, you and I will go through again. Uh, how do we deal with the difficulties in our lives? How do we deal with seasons of pain? Uh, how do we process our sufferings before the Lord? And, and how is that not a challenge but complementary to our faith in a God who went to the cross on our behalf? And so we're going to look at the problem of pain this morning. And friends, you and I walk into the room, and, and you are currently sitting in the room uh, with, with baggage, with, with, with scars from experiences of pain in your life. Uh, maybe you are like me. Your, your current pain is having to watch your stupid team lose another match at the weekend. Uh, but but may, maybe your pain is, is serious rather than silly, like mine. But perhaps you come in the room and, and you've got things right now that you are struggling to process before the Lord. You, you and I, we, we actually walk around with our scars. They become us in certain ways. Perhaps they become us like we've learned something through them. Or perhaps they are still a part of us and part of our experiences, which is why there are challenges involved with following Jesus. We've got to process, well, why do good things happen to, uh, to bad people? Or why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, we have to process, uh, or is, I thought Jesus, following Jesus was just all good. I thought that he was meant to be the answer to everything. That, that's what the preacher said on a Sunday morning once, right? So, so, so why is he not the answer to this? We have to wrestle through our doubts and our disappointments. We have to, we have to come to terms with the, the prayers that we've prayed, perhaps uh, persistently, and yet haven't seen answers to. Uh, all of us come into the room with scars. And in fact, there, there is an inevitability at picking up pain in the world today. It's inevitable that, that you will pick up pain, whether it's the brokenness of this world, whether it's just the fallenness of humanity, whether it's the unpredictability of other people, whether it's the fickleness of our own hearts, or whether it's the presence of a real enemy who is out to get us. That It is inevitable that you and I will pick up our scars, we'll pick up sources of pain. And so the question is, what do we do with that? What do we do with our scars? What do we do with our pain? And in one sense, this is a bad thing, right? In one sense, who wants to feel hurt? In one sense, who wants to feel pain? That's a horrible thing to have to go through, no matter what type of pain that is. But in another sense, that there is a sense in which the rawness that you feel when you're going through something tough is actually an openness in your heart to finding Jesus. The moments when you feel really raw and really tender are the moments when his gentleness looks far more beautiful. They're the moments when his goodness can really be known and really be tested in, in a way that a life without any trouble, perhaps it would have been hard to identify with certain parts of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. But in some ways, our suffering doesn't have to be a stumbling block. In some ways, it can be an open gate into experiencing more of him. And so we're going to, this morning, read Dr. Luke. Luke is a physician. We're going to read Dr. Luke, dissect four different stories of pain and figure out what we can learn from this, from this doctor. We're in Luke chapter 13. If you don't have your Bibles in front of you, the, the slides are going to have the verses. And we're going to read 
four different stories in 17 verses. Starting from verse 1. There were some present at that time who told him, Jesus, uh, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or, or those 18 of whom the, ta- the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you likewise will perish. He then told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, And he came seeing the fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit from this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And the vine dresser answered him, Sir, uh, let it alone this year also, and I'll dig around it and put on manure. And if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and couldn't fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are healed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately She was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosened from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. Let's close our eyes and pray. Lord Jesus, we approach your words today and we ask that we would see you. We ask that the the week that has gone before us would fade away. Lord, we pray that what we walk into the room would not cloud our vision of you. But Jesus, through your scripture, we pray that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts again. We pray that the Holy Spirit would inspire us to believe in his goodness, that he is good and worthy and faithful to be trusted. And Lord, we pray that the word of God would also instruct us. It would help us make sense of our pain and our suffering. And it would lead us to the foot of the cross, the moment when you went through your suffering and came out on the other side. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So before we jump in, I think we should ask the question, why has Dr. Luke put these four stories in order? Because this order is not found in the other Gospels. It feels like uh, Dr. Luke has taken stories from different places and put them all together. And my question is, why has he done that? 
why he's, he arranged a story where, number one, you had a, a cruel dictator in violent and evil ways, and then, and then number two, you had a story of a natural disaster, an accident that ended 18 people's lives, and then you have a story, uh, a seemingly weird story of a, a fig tree that's not bearing any figs, and, and then you have a story of a lady who uh, has, has been oppressed by demonic influences and uh, therefore has been unable to live a healthy, normal life to the fullness that she could have. Why has Luke put one story after another after another when all the other gospel writers don't do that? Well, it's important to actually ask that question, to ask the question, why is Scripture arranged in this way? Because, because actually, Luke is showing a pattern here. Like any good doctor, looking for the patterns, looking for the symptoms, looking for the signs that might help them to get to the underlying cause. Uh, this is not done by accident, and this is not in chronological order. Luke is theming these stories. He's putting one story after another story after another story so that we would find something. And actually, I think there are two patterns that we discover here. The first pattern is this. Every story is a story of suffering. Every story is a story of pain. Every story is a story of difficulty. And we'll look in those in a moment. The second pattern is this. Not only is, is the suffering just the experience, what you are going through, but, but there's actually double the trouble. There is an overload of suffering because the second suffering is how do we make sense of our experiences? And in each story, there's actually opposition. In each story, there is a sense of people trying to make meaning of what they are going through. So they're not just hurt by the experiences. They're hurt as they are struggling to find any meaning in their experiences. And each of us do this, don't we? Uh, Gareth in, uh, in Amanzum Doti likes to say we are meaning makers. We always try to find and understand why what we are going through makes any sense in our lives. And so we look for meaning in many places. The problem with that is if we make the meaning up ourselves, if we guess why we are going through these experiences, if we don't let the Word of God define for ourselves why we are going through what we are going through and why we can still trust God in the middle of it. And so we're going to hit uh, story after story, figuring out and asking the question, what are we learning about not just our suffering, but our attempts to understand our suffering and our struggles as well. And so let's look at the first two stories that we see. The first two stories have the same message in them. That the first correction that Jesus gives, not just to heal or restore the suffering, but also to correct the faulty meaning, the faulty thinking about our suffering, the first correction that Jesus gives here is this, that those who suffer do so because of their performance, because of their moral performance. Somehow we get it into our heads that if we do good, we get it easier. But if we do bad, we get it harder. We get it into our heads that our performance dictates our lives and what goes on in our lives. And so how good or bad you are affects how easy or hard your life is. And we see Jesus cutting against this understanding of suffering, cutting against the meaning that has been made in Luke chapter 13. In verse 2, Jesus says this, Do you think that all these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Do you think that these guys are worse than you because they're going through harder things than you? 
And then in verse 4, the same thing. The second story, the story of the tower falling on the people. Again, he says, do you think that they were worse offenders than all of the others that lived in Jerusalem? So were the Galileans who were, who were cruelly murdered by a dictator, Pontius Pilate, were they murdered because they were the worst? Or, or, or the, Jerus- uh, the Jerusalemites? The, the men and women of Jerusalem were the 18 who died, the 18 worst people who lived in that city on that day, and therefore it was their sin that caused their death. Is, is that the question that we are asking? And you know what's difficult about this? Actually, although it might sound silly, actually this is what we get told by the world all the time. Performance is everything. And so this is actually a really clever lie from the enemy to confuse our understanding and move further away from not closer to the heart of God. The clever lie is borrowing from logic found in this world that it's all based on our performance, right? So if you hit your sales target for that month, you get your bonus as a reward for your actions. If you study really hard for that test you have tomorrow in Dandel, sorry, you will get top marks as the just reward for your behavior, if you kill every single Liverpool player who exists because they do terribly every time they step on a football field, it it is the just reward for performing badly on the soccer field. I'm carrying my pain into this morning. (laughs) No. Jesus is really clear. Jesus is clear that our suffering is not necessarily linked to our sinning. That, that, That the blessed, soft life mentality is not the result of behaving in a certain way. And that's actually not because we are all better than we think we are. Wouldn't that be a wonderful message for today? Sorry. It's actually the opposite. It's actually because all of us need to repent and all of us need to fall away. There's no such thing as some sinners being better or worse than other sinners. The point is you're a sinner. The point is you've missed the mark. You failed the standard. The point is, it doesn't matter how many things you think you can do right, your right things don't excuse your wrong things. We don't go into a courtroom at a trial of a murderer, which is probably me right now, to Mohammed Salah, and say, say, look, I understand that this guy did one thing wrong. I, I understand that he committed a sin. I understand that Mo Salah is no more. But uh, actually... You know, you didn't see that, but on my way here to the trial, I actually noticed that there was an old lady and she was really struggling to cross the road. So I just thought, Ish, let me quickly make up for this. And, and, and you didn't see me. I, I, I kind of hand in hand walked along the side of the road. I did something good. I mean, I, judge, I know I did something bad, but hey, now I, I, I've done something good as well. But like the good things we do can excuse the wrong things we do. Like if we do enough good, we're given the magic broom to sweep everything under the carpet. And pretend like nothing has existed. No, 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 no. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is really clear in verses 3 and in verse 5. The reason why some people are, are not worse sinners than others is because fundamentally we're all sinners. And we all need repentance from God. Isaiah 65 verse 6 says this. Your, all of your righteous works are like filthy rags. Your righteous works. Did you get that? The good things that you do, not the bad stuff, your good things, aren't you on your very best day? You're like a filthy rag to him. 
which is why in Romans 3, Paul, writing to the Romans, borrows language from both the 14th and the 52nd Psalmist when, they, when he uh, states, no one is righteous, not even one. And, and that's why in Romans 6, just a couple of chapters later, he says that the wages of our sins is death. And so if your righteousness cannot meet the mark of the perfect one, and, and if you are condemned by the things that you do wrong, your sins, it means that you get the just reward for your actions, but your actions are all filthy rags, which means the right thing to do, the right judgment, is not to excuse your sin, but to judge your sin fairly and impartially, even if it leads to condemnation. Part of the gospel message is this. You are worse than you think you are. And if you don't understand that, if you don't understand that you are actually worse than you think you are, you're never going to think you need a Savior. You're never going to think that Jesus is worth it. He's not necessary. He's a nice optional extra for the moments when you feel a little bit worse about yourself. But friends, be very clear this morning. Because the gospel is clear. Your righteousness is filthy. You have missed the mark. And if you want fairness, if you want justice, justice looks like a cross. Which is why he says this. Everyone needs to repent. Everyone needs to turn back to him. If you don't, Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, you are dead in your sins and your transgressions. And last time I checked, dead people don't come back alive themselves. Dead people can't heal themselves. Dead people can't crawl to a hospital. Dead people are dead. You see, I think what's probably happening here, I can imagine this. Uh, I can imagine the men and women of Galilee asking the question, but God, this doesn't make sense. Why do bad things happen to good people? And I'm sure that there are many of us, if not all of us, at some point who have said this question or at least at a minimum felt like we didn't deserve something that we were going through in our lives. It's the same thing. Why do bad things happen to good people? But I hope the, the two or three minutes that we've had to look at what the gospel really says means you, like Jesus, are going to start to flip that question around. Because the question is not, why do bad things happen to good people? Because where are the good people? Where are the righteous people whose rags are like royal robes, not filthy rags? Where are the good people? The gospel actually makes it very plain and very clear. The question should actually be, why would anything good happen to bad people? Because actually that's all of us. Left to ourselves stuck in our sins. Don Carson writes this, sin deserves death and it's God's mercy that none of us are struck down in any given moment. So do me a favor this morning, right now, before we move on, take a really big, deep breath of air. Take it in. I can see some of us doing it. Now let it go before you actually pass out. 
Friends, that very breath that you just took was a demonstration of the mercy of God. The fact that you are in this room, sitting down, breathing, is a demonstration that God is merciful. It's a demonstration that you and I are not saved by our works. We are, in fact, saved by his grace. And that we are sustained each day, breath by breath, by grace and grace alone. It is a demonstration that mercy really did triumph over justice, over judgment. It's a demonstration, your very breath, each moment you inhale and exhale. It's a demonstration that where sin may abound, his grace abounds all the more. It's a demonstration that fundamentally, although God might hold us to account, that his love transcends understanding. And although he may be angry in a moment, actually his, genera- his love goes from generation to generation. And so if our works were on a checks and balances sheet, the do goods and the do bads, we wouldn't be sitting here this morning. But even if you haven't yet known Jesus Christ, even if you haven't yet received the forgiveness of your sins, you are still here, you are still breathing. That's his mercy on you that you might know him. For those of us on the other side of the cross who already know him, we receive that grace freely. But if you haven't yet figured out that it's all of grace, if you can't say he's both Lord and Savior, and you're still here, and you're still alive, and you're still breathing, he is being merciful. As he was to those of us who are saved, he is being merciful to you if you are not yet saved. Why? So that in his kindness, you can be led to repentance. Which is again, why in verses 3 and verses 5, he says, we all must repent and fall from our ways. And I want to ask the question before we jump into the next story. I want to ask this question. Have you fallen into the trap of believing that your suffering is based on your performance? Those of us on the other side of the cross those of us who will claim access to his grace, have you fallen from the grace with which you are meant to live in? It might go something a little bit like this. My sin has caused my troubles now. Or perhaps it goes, if only I could have been a little bit better. Or my personal pet peeve. Perhaps it's, if only my faith could just be a little bit stronger. Friends, all of that stuff is performance stuff. All of that stuff is a mentality that you think you can somehow get out of your troubles. And if that's you, if you've just drifted and fallen a little bit from grace and a little bit into performance, friends, I want to ask, is that not crushing? Is that not a weight that you think you can't carry? Is that not too heavy? Is that not too difficult? To feel like you have to always be right for things to go right. Perhaps that was a weight not designed for you. Perhaps that was a weight that he bore on his body as he walked up a hill. And he ended the requirement of your performance because his performance was deemed good enough for all of you. 
And then let's move on to the, the, the second story of pain. It's actually the third story of pain, but it's the second lesson that we get here. The first story is of a cruel dictator. The second story is of a natural disaster. The third story is, well, let's face it, it's a parable, so it's the strangest one of the lot. It's a cryptic story about a very grumpy owner, a very patient gardener, and a very barren fig tree. Friends, in our first and second story of pain, what we were led into thinking was this kind of prosperity gospel mindset that our good behavior and moral performance means that we are saved from our suffering. Well, in this next story, the second thing that Jesus corrects, the second faulty thinking, the faulty meaning that we think we can make from our suffering is perhaps not, if only I was better, but perhaps it's, I don't have to do anything at all. The first problem is if you take too much responsibility for your suffering. The second, though, the second danger is if you take too little responsibility for your suffering. You see, in this story, the parable of the barren fig tree, we'll read it in a second, the suffering is the future cutting away and the taking away. And the mistake that Jesus needs to correct is people who presume on the kindness of the Lord who is taking advantage of the gift of grace that has been given to us. It's in thinking that God is going to forever be tolerant of you, forever be patient with you, and that he will never hold you to account for anything. It's forgetting that his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And so although this just seems to be a story about a stingy tree, actually it's another site of pain. Verse 6, and he told this parable, a man had a fig tree in a vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and none was found. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it even use up the ground? And then the vine dresser answers, sir, let it alone this year as well until I I dig around it and I, I put manure And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. Now you see, unlike the first two stories, the stories of the dictator and the story of the natural disaster, uh, this story is not just a story. It's a story wrapped in a story. I've often said to you guys that parables are like a Wacky Wednesdays deal. There's a story, but then the parable itself is also a story. So it's a story within a story, right? It's like a storyception if you get inception. What's going on here? What's, what's happening in this story is as Jesus is telling a parable, he's, he's using symbols. He's using meanings. And so the question we actually should be asking is, who's the vine dresser and who's the fig tree? What does the fig tree represent and what does the vine dresser represent? Well, the fig tree. Let's move to the first thing, the fig tree, because the fig tree is the people of God. The fig tree are the people who have not borne the fruit of repentance, both in Matthew 3 verse 8 and then in Luke 3 verse 8. Two times in the Gospels we read that we are meant to bear the fruit of the repentance. And remember, repentance is what Jesus has come to proclaim. And we're meant to bear that fruit in our lives. We're meant to, people are meant to look at us and see evidences of the fact that we have repented and turned to Jesus Christ. For sure, the grace of God is for free, and yet... The grace that comes alone should never stay alone. It should come with things. It should nurture evidences and fruit for all the world to see. This person 
has been saved by grace. And so the fig tree represents people who have heard but not received. It represents people who should have but have not borne the fruit of repentance. Listen to theologian Greg Lanier who wrote a a great article called Why Jesus Cursed the Fig Tree. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is described as God's vineyard or a tree or as figs who have been ripened early in the harvest season. In fact, several times the prophets described God as inspecting Israel for early figs as a sign of spiritual fruitfulness. Yet, he finds no first ripe fig that his soul desired. And so in two different exiles, the Assyrian and then the Babylonian, God pours out the curse of barrenness and Israel becomes a fruitless fig tree. What Greg Lanier is describing to us is that the fig tree is the people of God when the people of God are not actually the people of God. They're the people of themselves that just have a name tag. They're the people of God who show no evidence of the fact that the gospel has taken deep root in their lives. And so the people of God are this fruitless fig tree, but now Jesus has come and he's looking for healthy figs. Which leads us to the next question. If Jesus is the owner and we are the figs, who's the vine dresser? Well, in some cases, this is a little confusing, but in verse 7, we read this. He said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on the fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? There's a vine dresser in this story that displays patience, that displays kindness, that doesn't give the fig tree what it deserves. That is long-suffering in his desire to see fruit from his people. John 15 verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch that is connected to the vine must bear fruit. The vine dresser is God himself. The vine dresser is the Father. And the Father has sent Jesus. For three years now, this man went to the fig tree. For three years, Jesus was in ministry, and he's come to find his fruit. And if he doesn't find his fruit, he'll come to cut the tree down, because it is not showing the fruit that it is supposed to. Friends, this is John 15 language. The the suffering is the cutting away of any branch that is unhealthy as it is connected to the vine. It, It is taking away those who do not bear the fruit of what God's kingdom came to do, lead us to repentance. So friends, in this story of suffering, in this story of pain, there is a warning that is here. The warning is of what is to come, a future suffering. And this suffering, although it may not be necessarily linked to our works, it doesn't dismiss that our actions do matter. It doesn't dismiss that our responses to our experiences will testify something. Either your response to suffering will be a display of trust in a sovereign and good God, or it will be a display of unbelief, a display that you're not really 
trusting that he is who he says he is. And he won't really do what he promised he would do. Either he is or he is not faithful. Either you can trust him or you cannot. And we don't need to see, we don't need to hear your words because we'll see with your actions. We'll see with your responses. We'll see what happens when you get put through a fiery furnace or when you get, have to face up against a giant or when you have to stare across at a sea that's not splitting open on its own. And we'll see how you respond and we'll see how deep God's trust is embedded in your heart. And so, although we are saved by grace, and we must be sure that, our, that we don't think suffering is always linked to our sin, we must also not flip on the other side and think, therefore, that we can run around like the Romans in Romans 6. If I receive the grace of God, well, maybe I should just keep on sinning so that the grace of God can abound. Like you think you can fool God. Our responses matter. And don't be mistaken. The father is the vine dresser. And the vine dresser is saying, hold on a little longer. The vine dresser is saying, there's something more that is to come. There's another way that I can bear fruit. Where is Jesus? He's on the road of Galilee. The road where the Galileans who were opposing Pilate had just been sacrificed. He's on that road opposing Pilate and he's heading to the cross and he's not there yet. Jesus is the fertilizer. He's the manure, the catalyst for growth, the catalyst for fruit, the catalyst for repentance, the vine dresser. Oh, he's so kind and he's so patient. But let's also not make the mistake of thinking that the vine dresser is forever patient. One day there will be a cutting. Eventually, time will run out if you seek to continue taking advantage of the gift of grace. And so friends, let us pause here. Before we jump to the last story, I want to pause here. Can you see that right now what Jesus is actually doing in the Gospel of Luke is he's creating a bit of a balance. It's like a scale going one way or the other. And what Jesus is trying to do for us is just... Help us to understand that suffering is more nuanced than always one thing or always another thing, but that suffering actually has multiple causes and that you and I shouldn't jump to one thing or the other because actually there's a number of reasons for why we are going through what we are going through. In stories one and two, the reason was not performance, but, but in story number three, the reason actually was our responses. There are two dangers that are at play here, friends. These are the two dangers of extremes. One extreme is believing that we can run around and do whatever we want because no one will hold us to account. But then the other extreme on the flip side, on the scale that has gone imbalanced on the other way, is the danger, the mistake that we make in thinking that somehow we deserve everything we get or that somehow our suffering is always a response, a punishment for our wrongdoing. And so you're either going to feel really heavy and really condemned and always think you should be a little bit better than how you are, or you're going to run around wild and free, enjoying your sin, but missing his grace. These are the dangers of extremes, and this is why we should never give in to extremes. 
There is something about God's grace here that saves us from our works. But there is also something about God's grace here that should cause us to say no. And we just read Romans 6 last month. And so do your actions matter for your salvation? No. But as you continually try and work out your salvation with fear and trembling in your lives, yes. You and I have a delicate balancing act to say here. Sin is not always linked to our, suffering is not always linked to our sin. But, but likewise, sometimes there are consequences for our actions. And we can't think that we get away with it. And so what I want to do, what I think Jesus is doing here is cautioning us from either extreme. And not thinking, it's always because of my sin. Or, it's never because of my sin. But rather to think, maybe I need to ask God for his wisdom and his will here. It's why when you are suffering, it is a good idea to go to God and say, is there something in my life that has caused this to happen? Knowing that sometimes the answer is no, but knowing that sometimes, perhaps if you ask Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, sometimes it's yes. Or perhaps you should go to God and say, well, if it's, if it's not my actions, is it just the brokenness in the world? Is it just why that natural disaster came? Is it just why that accident occurred that I never saw coming and never intended to happen? Is it just that we're broken? Romans 8 says that our world is in bondage to decay. Romans 8 says that the world is actually groaning for the perfection it's know it's built for, but has not yet seen. And, and so is it me or is it not me? Is it, is it suffering? Is it just the brokenness in the world? Is that why global pandemics spread around the world? Is that why we have natural disasters? Is that why accidents occur that we never saw or intended to happen? We must ask these questions because it's never going to be one thing or another. Our God is more complicated than that. And therefore, we can need to come to him and say, why is what I'm going through, how is that meant to be building faith in me? How is that meant to be a, a test of my trust in you? And then lastly, just briefly, I want to touch on the last scene. So what Jesus has done in, story number, in stories one and two is say, it's not about your works. And in story number three, what he said is, you must take care to respond well. But there is another option for our suffering as well. In, story, in the last story, we, we heard a story of a lady, and that lady has a disabling spirit. That's what the ESV calls it. In verse 11, we read, there is a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. And she was bent over, and she was not fully able to straighten herself. And then later on in verse 16, we hear something very similar. In verse 16, Jesus is responding, and she says, and he says, It's not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years. If the mistake in the first and second story is the kind of prosperity gospel, you, you, you get a blessed life. And if the second mistake found in the third story was this kind of liberation story where you can just run around and do what you want, the mistake in the last story is having a purely humanist worldview, a purely natural worldview, in thinking that everything has a logical explanation and that my mind can get there if I can just rationalize and scientifically work out my logic. The problem with this is that you've forgotten where you are. 
You've forgotten that you're not just in a broken world, but you're also in an age of warfare. You forget, you've forgotten that you're living in an age when our enemy knows he is defeated and yet he wants to take you down because he knows that he's already going down. It, it, it is a vengeful spite from our defeated foe who is on a leash and slowly but surely there'll be a day when our God reigns back the leash and ends the conflict once and for all. He is on a leash but that does not mean that he is safe. In fact, in John 16, we read, in John 10, verse 10, sorry, we read that he desires only to steal and to kill and to destroy. And actually, actually, this has been our experience as a couple the last couple of months. We've been through just a very rough time. And I've been so grateful for the ability of uh, being able to lean on a few people who are in this room. And it's just felt like a season when things that we have never had to worry about before suddenly come and sideswiped us. And it's been varied. It's not been one thing or two things or three things. It's felt like attack after attack after attack. And actually, I would describe March as a very bruising month for me personally. And I, I still feel like I actually have the bruises of this battle on me. I'm not feeling particularly whole or particularly healthy. I'm not running to the mountaintop all the time. I'm enjoying the care of my physician and trusting in his victory and letting him bandage up my bruises personally. What, what I don't do when I experience periods of suffering would perhaps be the, the slightly Pentecostalist uh, response to suffering, to play the spiritual card too early. Satan, it's him. Because sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's my own foolishness. Sometimes it's my, fatherly, my father's loving discipline. Sometimes it's just brokenness of having to live in an imperfect world. So very rarely and only then very slowly will I play the spiritual card of a spiritual attack. And yet we must be aware of our warfare environment and we must be aware that our enemy comes and he is hell-bent, literally, on dragging you with him. And so as I try to just understand, Lord, I what is going on? This thing's happening here. This thing's happening here. This thing's happening here. I'm, I'm inquiring. I'm auditing. I'm letting other people into my story. We're, we're auditing and not seeing sin. And it feels, and this was Selo's words to me, it feels too designed and too coordinated to be the coincidences of a broken world. And so I, in, a, in a conversation I had with a friend of mine called Selo, he just said, this is too designed and too organized to be a coincidence. This is not one or two, but five or six or seven curveballs. And they're hitting, what, like in one week, five new things. I had an experience in, in, in the car waiting to pick up Knox of like a, like a wave of fear. And I've just not been fearful in my life before. So I've just never felt that. But just it shook me to my core, like this, this, this wave of fear that hit, hit over me. 
and, and just chatting to Selo, he was just like, do you think this is by accident? Can you not see how clearly designed these fiery darts are? Can you not see he's trying to take you out? And you know what was really interesting? As he said those things, that wave of fear, it, it was like mist that just dissipated. It just kind of wafted away. It, it was like that, that really powerful feeling of oppression. The Prince of Peace said no more. And you know what? We're, we, we've, we've got unanswered prayers that we are still begging and pleading the Lord for. But that fear is not there. And I think the reason is in that moment I understood. In that moment I examined all of the possible causes for our suffering. And in the moment, through God's kind grace of a brother who I needed to be a friend closer than a brother, I needed uh, another iron to sharpen me a bit. In, in that moment, it just felt like this is peace. This is clarity. Because you know what? Sometimes spiritual warfare sounds really scary. Sometimes knowing that you've got an enemy after you sounds scary. And I just want to say it's the exact opposite. There was so much peace in knowing that the guy who was coming after me has already been dealt with. If it's my sin, I've got to do some work in repentance, not just to get forgiveness in the moment, already purchased for me on the cross, but also to, to, to figure out what patterns and lifestyles I need to change. And if it's brokenness in the world, it's like, well, when's the next thing going to come? But if it's an attack from the enemy, I know exactly what to do to him. I know exactly where he can go back to the place where he comes from, back to the place where I will never go. I know exactly what to do if this is warfare. It's to call on the goodness and the protection of my God. I know what to do. Ephesians 6 tells me what to do. There's an armor already laid out for me. And so I know what to do in moments of suffering. The moments that seem the most distressing, the moments that seem the most difficult, this is a spiritual force against me. Yeah, but who's got my back? Who's covering me on all sides? It doesn't matter if I'm surrounded. Because I know who's surrounding the one who's surrounding me. I've got no reason to be scared. I've got no reason to be fearful. And even if that thing doesn't fade away in a moment, I know how my story ends. I know how this whole thing ends. I know that there was a time when he cried, it is finished and he really meant it. And I stand on the cross of Jesus Christ. I stand on the cross where he cried, it is finished. There's not something else to be done. It is finished. Satan, you have lost. So you can get lost. It's just a clear cry from God, which is exactly what he does here. It's exactly what Jesus does in the story. When Jesus, story, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, woman, you have been freed from your disability. And then he laid his hand on her. Now, normally, if you're not really in church, often what normally happens is you lay hands and you pray and you trust something's going to happen. He didn't even pray. He has so much authority in a moment. 
Whereas you and I should never slip into the arrogance of declaring, decreeing, or claiming what we do not have power to do, he can. He can. He can walk up to someone in a moment and say, no more. He can say, I have authority here. This person is mine. And so whether it's sickness or suffering, whether it's oppression or disappointment, be gone. And it will be gone. He laid his hands on her and immediately. That's really important because she suffered with this for 18 years. 18 years, nothing, immediately gone, forever. Do you see both the authority and the compassion of the Messiah? The Messiah. Literally, it means anointed one. The anointed one who has been given both the authority, the right, and the empowerment, the ability to come to you in a blink of an eye and say, no more. No more. I remember when we were still in Cape Town, my, uh, we got news that my granddad was dying and he was a couple of weeks away from throat cancer. And I had one of my sisters staying with us for a couple of weeks. And so uh, I remember sitting down, having a conversation with my sister and she had just kind of fallen away, stopped going to church, but was still not really sure how to process this. And he had had cancer before, and he had beaten it, but this one had come back, and he'd been given two weeks to live, and uh, we, were, we were close to, uh, to me getting on a flight and going and saying goodbye to him. And I remember a conversation with my sister where she was asking, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to respond. And I just remember saying to her, I believe in God too much just to not pray for healing still. I know what the doctor has said. I know. I know that time is up. I know that we're going to get on a flight and we've got two weeks. I know that I'm going to come back here and I'm not going to see his final breath. I know that. But I have too much faith that he really is the Messiah to not still pray for healing. And that's not actually heroic because anything else would have meant, meant that he's not the Messiah. Any other response would have been that I somehow think God is capped. God is limited. But you know, I want to end with this. There's a story, one of my, actually my favorite, all-time favorite story of three guys who had to stand in front of a whole empire and say, I am not giving up my trust in God. And you know what happened? Heroic faith, you know what happened? You're expecting breakthrough. This is the part, right? This is, this is the part when the music gets a bit louder and people start getting a bit excited. It's like a, a bold declaration of faith. This is amazing. These guys have stood up against their sin and suffering. They refuse to give up their belief in God. This is the breakthrough moment. You know what happened? They were put in chains. 
and they were made to stand and fire next to a, a fiery furnace that was seven times the normal heat. And I just wonder what was going through their minds when they said, my God is able and he will deliver me from this trial. And they're in chains and they're looking at the furnace and this might be the last thing they say. My God is able and he will. I mean, that is rocket fuel of faith right there. That is no matter what happens, he can break through kind of faith. That's like giants will fall, seas will split, fires will be extinguished. What is not possible for us is possible with God. He is the God of the impossible. He is the God of immeasurably more. He's the one who cried, it is finished, so there's nothing left to do. He is able and he will deliver me from this fiery furnace. Next verse. But even if he does not, still I will praise him. Still I will praise him. Even if he does not. We spend so much time trying to run away from our suffering. Not realizing who's in the middle of our suffering. Who we're meant to find in the midst of our pain. We spend so much time trying to make meaning and figure out causes. And they could be so varied. So rather than trying to find the cause... Let's maybe try and find the God in the middle. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. They are put to death. And then an officer looks inside the fiery furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar, didn't, didn't, didn't we throw three men into the fire? Yes, we did. Well, I see a fourth man now, and he looks like the son of the gods. PJ Smythe used to say he got it so close, he just needed to take out an S. The son of God. The fourth man in the fire. The one who is with you in the middle of your sufferings. The one who will take every weight and will wipe every tear and will lead you into a land of goodness. The one who is able to deliver you, like this woman, in a moment, but is also the one who will stand side by side those 18 who perished. And they'll be more free and more alive and more healthy than they've ever been before. Because it's finished. And he's one. I'm going to ask us to stand for a moment. Just with your eyes closed, perhaps you're like the 
lady who needs Jesus to see them again. I'm feeling like I'm struggling. I'm feeling like I'm under pressure here. Perhaps it's sickness. Perhaps it's heaviness. Perhaps it's uncertainty. Perhaps it's disappointment. Perhaps it's the breakdown of relationship. Perhaps it's the condemnation over your own sin. You just need Jesus to see you in this moment. closed, I'd love you just to put out your hands. It's a little bit like you're receiving a gift of some kind. And there isn't, there isn't anyone around you with eyes open, just me. I want you to respond just by saying, Jesus, I need you to see me again. I need you to see me again. Take a moment before we end to allow Jesus to come close. He's the Father of mercy. He's the God of all comfort. He's the Prince of Peace that transcends all understanding. He's counselor. He's friend. So just ask your friend to come. Just ask your friend to draw close. You are not forgotten. You are not forsaken. Not left alone. He comes in the fire. He's an ever present help in times of trouble. He's near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. doesn't break a bruised reed. He doesn't quench a smoldering wick. You'll find him in your suffering. You'll have a fellowship with him. You'll have a deepness with him. You'll see that you can really, really trust him. felt lost and he never leaves what a God we trust
but a God we follow.